Thank you, ladies. Thanks for using your gifts to serve us in that way. It's so wonderful to begin our time together focusing on the glory of Christ and on the blessed assurance that we have that those who are in him, he will hold fast. We are his own and we can look forward to glory with him someday. There's a little flurry going on around here, so I shouldn't have worn black today, I guess. I don't, I don't have dandruff. I just have whatever this is that's falling down from the sky. So <clears throat> did any of you grow up on Reader's Digest like I did? Okay, some of you still know what it is. I tried to go buy a copy this morning and they didn't sell it at the Ralph's near my house. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what has this world come to? You can't go buy a Reader's Digest? I don't get the hard copy anymore. I read it on my Kindle, but I, I still do read it rather faithfully. It's nothing like it used to be. It's a shadow of its former self. If you don't know what Reader's Digest is, it's kind of a compilation of different things, different articles, uh, health news, which it seems like now it's become all health news, which was never my favorite section. I would always skip that section. <laughs> um, excerpts from fiction, drama in real life. That was always my favorite article. It was really kind of like literature for dummies, but what can I say? I enjoyed reading it. When it would come to my house, I would read it cover to cover, and I would try and get it before my mom got a hold of it to read it. One of the word features that it still has in every issue is called, it's now it's just called word power. It used to be called, it pays to increase your word power. And we used to quiz each other as a family to see where we ranked on the Reader's Digest scale of our vocabulary. Were we exceptional, excellent, or merely good? Below good didn't even rank on their scale. So I don't have a vast vocabulary now, but I do attribute Reader's Digest and increase your word power to playing a part in helping me to recognize the importance of words and how possessing a good vocabulary is a means to communicating well and to understanding the ideas that people are communicating to you. Because problems arise, don't they, when we don't understand what's being communicated to us. I was reviewing a master's seminary student's thesis paper, and I kept coming across this word, pericope. I had no idea what it meant, so I couldn't get a hold of what the student was trying to say. Susan, you probably know what this word is, because you're your PhD. But he kept talking about these paracopes, this paracope and that paracope and the previous paracope. And I was like, what is he talking about? So I looked it up in the dictionary. Come to find out it's actually the word pericope. Didn't know that. Pericope. And it means an extract from a text, especially from a book of the Bible. It's like, oh, he's talking about the passages of scripture that he's been quoting back and forth. So I had never come across that word before. And knowing that definition helped me to better understand the paper I was reading. And now I know the word pericope. It really does pay to increase your word power. And words are important. So today, the title of the lecture is Consider Jesus, obviously, from our passage in Hebrews chapter 3. And I want to look at the word consider as it's used here in verse 1. Consider Jesus, who was faithful. It's probably not an unfamiliar word to any of us, consider, but it's important to make sure that we understand this vocabulary word fully and properly. The word consider means to contemplate or ponder something, and I think that's the part of the definition that we all 
really know and understand. But did you know that the word consider also assumes that as a result of contemplating or pondering that thing, that something in your life will change. You'll come to a conclusion or make a decision about something. This is the part of the definition that's most important for us to understand regarding this passage. We are to consider Christ. We're not just supposed to think about Jesus, know who he is, give him a few minutes of our time, and then move on. We are to consider him. So let's look for a minute just at how Jesus used this word consider when he was talking to his disciples about how they were worrying about their lives. In Luke 12, 24 to 28, Jesus said to the disciples, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? In Jesus' exhortation here to his disciples not to worry, he commanded them to consider. They were commanded to consider the ravens. Even though the ravens didn't sow or reap, they didn't store up food, yet God feeds them. The disciples should trust that God would provide for them since he loves them way more than the birds. They were commanded to consider the lilies. The lilies don't weave their own clothes, but they were more beautifully dressed than anything Solomon ever wore. The disciples could trust that God would provide for them since they are more valuable than grass in the field. So we see that this consideration that Jesus commanded of the birds and the flowers was to result in a change in the disciples, a change in attitude, a change from worry and fear to trust in the Lord. Consideration will lead to a change in our thinking, which will change our attitudes, motivations, evaluations, and most importantly, it's going to result in a change in our behavior. Holy living starts with thinking rightly. It starts with considering Jesus. And this consideration of Jesus will draw us to a conclusion and change how we live as individuals and in the church. A proper consideration of Christ is life-changing. So as we consider these things, keep in mind that we're not just learning things about Jesus, storing things up in our mind to get smarter. Ruth said it in this memorable way last week. She said, this message is not for your information, but for your transformation. We're being called to deeply consider Christ, who he is and what he has done, in order to be strengthened, to withstand any trial, to keep us firm in our faith, and to keep us confident in the hope that we had in the beginning when we first heard the good news of the gospel. And if you don't yet know Christ as the Lord of your life, today is your opportunity to consider him like you've never considered him before. And put your faith in his power to save you from your sins and to give you new life today, eternal life. So let's pray right now that God will do this transforming work in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come before you as the God of the universe. Lord, our hearts are heavy with the 
turmoil and chaos that we see in the world around us today, especially in Israel right now. And it just amazes us, Lord, that while your eye is there and you are controlling events, that you are using all of these things to bring your kingdom, to make your kingdom come. Lord, your eye is here with us as well. In each one of us, you know, each of our hearts. Lord, that just causes us to worship and praise you, that you see all things, you know all things simultaneously as everything is happening. None of this is out of your control. None of it is a surprise to you. And we just worship you and honor you and praise you that you care about each one of us, truly more than the birds, more than the flowers. You're acquainted with all of our ways. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you understand our thoughts from afar. Nothing is hidden from you, Lord. And so I just pray that you would meet each of us where we are today, that you would help us to consider Jesus and to grow in our faith in him. And I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so if you haven't already done this, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, and I'll read the first six verses to start us out today. Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope. Therefore, I'm going to keep reading verses 7 and 8 because verses 1 through 6 really build up to these commands in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. We've already learned that the author of Hebrews was concerned for his readers becoming hard-hearted, becoming deceived by sin and drifting away from the faith. And he knew just what they needed to hear. He knew what it was going to take for the recipients of this message to hold fast to their hope and to not become hardened in their hearts. And that is why he tells them in verse 1 to consider Jesus. In order to keep from being hardened, they needed to believe without a doubt that Jesus is better, better than any angel, better than any prophet or priest. And that is what we need to believe today as well in order to keep the faith and to keep from being hardened by the trickery of sin. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at seven considerations from Hebrews chapter 3 that will help us to keep from becoming hard-hearted. Considerations that will help us to hold fast to the truth that we have heard from the beginning in Christ. The first three considerations we'll talk about today from verses 1 through 6. Consider your calling and confession from verse 1. Consider Christ from verses 1 to 6. And consider your confident hope in verse 6. A mind set on these things, the things that we'll discuss this week and next, will keep us from having 
hardened hearts. So let's look at the first consideration in verse 1. Consider your calling and confession. So before we get to the main imperative of this section, which is to consider Christ, notice how the author refers to his audience, his readers, us, those who know Christ. These verses tell us a lot about who we are in Christ. It says that we are brothers or family members of Jesus and that we, as his brothers and family members, are characterized as holy. It says that we are sharers with one another in a calling that has come to us from heaven. And it says that those who have, we are those who have a confession under Jesus, the apostle and high priest of that confession that we make. So considering who we are in Christ is going to keep us from being hard-hearted. Let's look at some of the practical implications of these things that are true about those who are in Christ. Holy brothers. Brothers, we know, are part of the same family. As verse 6 says, true believers are part of the household of God. And household in that verse means the family, the people together, not the, the building or the structure. Back in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we considered how Jesus came and took on mortal flesh to fully identify with mankind. He was sent by God, the apostle, sent by God into the world to fulfill this task. Though he was the exact representation of God, he was made like us. He took our mortality upon himself and trusted God during his human existence. In so doing, his human nature was submitted to the will of God. This wasn't something that he had to do in heaven. But not only that, he also imputed to us the righteousness that he possessed in and of himself because he was holy. He was not ashamed to be called our brother so that he could bring us to God as his holy brothers. That is the only way that we could come near to God. It was through the perfect sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our representative, our high priest, who brought us to glory by the sacrifice of himself, brought us to God by the sacrifice of himself. His holiness has now been attributed to us. Our merits were nothing. Our merits could never save us. They could only condemn us. As those who have been cleansed now by the blood of Christ and brought near to God, we're no longer rewarded for our sins, but we're rewarded as though we were righteous like Christ. Our status as holy brothers is totally secure. However, it does have vast implications, practical outworkings of how we will live our lives. If we truly are and recognize that we are God's holy family members, We will have gratitude, won't we, for being welcomed into the family of God, something we did not deserve. We'll have humility that it was only because of the righteousness of Christ that we have this status as holy brothers. And then we also have the motivation to be personally holy in order to honor the sacrifice that Christ made of his life for us. God did not save us so that we could go on living just as we did before. He saved us so that we could bring glory to him. And how do we do that? How do we bring glory to him? Well, the life of Christ radiated the glory of God the Father, didn't it? He lived a sinless life of devotion to God. He was the exact image and representation of the nature of God. And the Christian's desire now is to do that same thing. 
by the grace of God in our lives. We consider Christ and what he has done for us, and our lives change more and more into his image. We start to think and behave more like our brother. Ruth said it last week that as Jesus trusted God, we are to trust him. And as Jesus praised God, we now can praise him. He is our example and the one that we want to become just like. This privilege that we have to be counted as holy members of God's household, as the people of God, as recipients of his mercy, is really something that we should consider every single day. And it's a consideration that changes how we think and live. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And now we want to offer up our lives and all that we are to serve the living God. But not only that, being holy brothers also implies that we will desire to live in unity and in harmony with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are now one family. Notice it says that we are sharers are partakers in our heavenly calling. We share in one calling, and so we're to be unified in our role as brothers and sisters in the faith with Christ. If the Lord Jesus Christ is your brother, and he's my brother, does it make sense that there should be fighting and disunity between us? No, we are called to be one family, united in Christ, serving him together in harmony. Flip ahead in your Bibles to chapter 13, the last chapter of Hebrews, verse 1. What does Hebrews 13, 1 say? Yes, let love of the brethren continue. Let love of the brethren continue. This is our responsibility. It's to love one another as family members and to do so continually, not giving up on each other, not walking away from each other, shutting each other out. We're to live in harmony and unity with one another as those who share or partake in a heavenly calling. So what is a calling? Well, when we hear about someone being called to do something, people usually mean that their life has been set apart for a specific purpose or goal. So someone might say, my calling is to protect wildlife or to help children who are disabled. But the calling that we read about in Hebrews is not an ordinary earthly calling. Where does this calling come from? It's from heaven. Our calling has a heavenly source. This gives, it shows the high value of this calling to say that it comes from heaven, doesn't it? Where God is, where Jesus Christ is seated at his right hand, this is where our calling comes from. This calling comes from God who reigns in heaven to all of us as sharers in this calling who have been called to follow Christ. All believers have this calling from a heavenly source. And this calling saves us. It sets us apart for special service to him. Now, there are different ways that we as believers serve the Lord in the body of Christ. He's given us different gifts. But our calling as holy brothers in Christ is the same. It's something that we share. We've been called out of darkness into light we are called and set apart as children of God. Those who share in this heavenly calling all have Jesus, the apostle and high priest, the one who brings us to God. We've begun and conti will continue all throughout Hebrews to learn about Jesus as our great high priest. 
And here we can consider what it means that we have a confession as those who have been brought to God by him. This has to do with definitions again, vocabulary words. You know the word confession, and we obviously, obviously, we often use this word as confessing our sins, right? We as Christians do this. We confess our sins to one another and to the Father to receive forgiveness. That is one definition of the word confession. But here in this verse, the word confession is used in a different sense. Our confession is what we believe or what we confess or profess to be true. So what is it that all true Christians believe? What is it that we confess to be true? There are certain truths that all who claim to be holy brothers with a heavenly calling must and will confess as non-negotiable in their lives. And the primary thing that all true believers confess is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. This confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and all that that implies is so vital to our Christian life. Jesus Christ is fully God. He was sent to earth by God. That is what it means that he's an apostle. He was sent by God, and he came to earth to live a life of complete obedience to the Father, and then to die on the cross for our sins, for the sins of all who believe in him. He completed this work and he ascended back into heaven where he is now reigning, seated at the right hand of God. And now he and his word has absolute authority in the life of every believer. That's what it means to say that he is Lord. He is our master. We do what he says. We commit to a life of submission and obedience to him and to what he has revealed to us in his word. Jesus is Lord of our lives. There is no other option for Christians but to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who Jesus is and what he has done in drawing us near to God as our high priest, when properly considered, will change the way that we live. Soft-hearted Christians will consider their calling as holy brethren and their confession that Jesus is Lord and their lives will change accordingly. So that brings us to the second point and the main command of this section, which is to consider Christ. The consideration of Christ is the imperative or command in this verse, and it is addressed to us as holy brothers, recipients of a heavenly calling who confess Jesus. Since we have been called with a heavenly calling by the one who is the apostle and high priest of our confession, we must consider him. And we all need this admonition as Christians. Whether you just became a Christian recently or you've been walking with the Lord for a hundred years, we all must consider Christ. Don't miss this important command. We have to consider Jesus right now, today, and always. This is to be a lifelong consideration, not just a one-time event when you first come to faith in him. So what does it mean to consider the person of Jesus? How are we to consider him? Well, we can look back to what we've already studied in Hebrews in chapters 1 and 2, and already we have a very long list of his perfections. I'll review just a few of them. He is the heir of all things. He's God's son. He created and is sustaining all things by the word of his power. He is the exact image of the nature of God. He is the one who purifies us from our sins 
and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's better than the angels. He has the greatest name and he's worthy of all worship. He is God. And at the end of chapter two, we saw that he became a partaker of our human nature so that we can be partakers of his righteousness. He was not ashamed to be identified with us so that we could be saved by him. He was tempted like we are, but unlike us, he resisted that temptation every single time so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest to bring us to God. And he is the one who comes to help each one of us when we are tempted. Consider Jesus. What we've learned about him already is enough for us to consider for the rest of our lives. But the author gives us still more to consider in chapter 3 about this one who has come to help us. And God expands our view of his supremacy, first by reminding us that Jesus was faithful. He was faithful to him who appointed him. God sent Jesus and appointed him to this specific role, and he was faithful. Pastor John, in his sermon on September 24th, listed several verses for us that proclaim the faithfulness of Christ. And he referred to the verse that we're looking at today, Hebrews 3.3. He also talked about Revelation 3.14, where Jesus is called the faithful and true witness. And then chapter 21.5, where his words are said to be faithful and true. The author of Hebrews now in chapter 3 continues to magnify Jesus by comparing him to Moses. Lest God's people continue to think about abandoning their faith in Christ for something else, for something a little bit safer, for something a little bit less open to criticism, a little more socially acceptable, God reminded them there's no other option. Jesus is the only option for salvation. You looked carefully at these verses in your lesson this week and saw how both Moses and Jesus were faithful to do God's will, but how much better Jesus is in comparison. Moses was called to serve the Lord in a very specific way and a special way, and he did so admirably. Like Anne pointed out two weeks ago, there wouldn't be much of a comparison if we were comparing Jesus with someone like Charlie Brown, for example, just an average guy. This comparison is striking because Moses was such an important figure to the Jews. Moses was unique. He met with God in person. His face would shine with the glory of God after they'd been in communion with one another. He had the important role of telling the people what God had told him and what God required of them as a new nation going forward. He was chosen to give testimony of the future fulfillment of all of God's promises in Israel. Moses had a vitally important role as a servant of God, as the leader of God's chosen people. Moses was the best possible example of a faithful servant that the Jews could find. But he was a sinful man nonetheless, wasn't he? And he had no power to save the Israelites from their sin and rebellion, as was obvious in the wilderness. The faithful service of Moses could only get the people of God so far. He was merely a servant, doing what God had told him to do. But in verse 6, we read that Christ was faithful as a son. Christ is the superior title for Jesus that the author uses here in verse 6. And the son and the heir of the house was Jesus. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus was a son over the house. And not only that, but this passage also points out to us that Moses 
was merely a creature. Jesus was his creator. Moses was the house, was part of the family of God. Jesus created Moses and brought together the family of God. So this passage draws us to a logical conclusion by asking, which is greater, the thing created or the one who created it? It's the creator, of course. So while Moses was a great man of faith, he looked ahead to Christ, as we will study in Hebrews chapter 11. He was not able to grant salvation or to bring people to God. Only Christ could fulfill this role because he was perfectly faithful over the house of God as a son. The son who was sent to redeem his brothers, to bring us to God as our merciful and faithful high priest. So soft-hearted Christians are those who think deeply on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and as a result, acknowledge him to be superior to anyone or anything else. When we consider Jesus, we realize that he is all we need. We forsake all forerunners and all substitutes, and we trust in him alone for everything that we need for life and godliness. Christ was faithful as a son over the household of God. And then notice how verse 6 goes on. Whose house we are. We are the household of God. We are the ones he came to save and to reunite as members of his family. Which brings us to our next point. We must consider our confident hope. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. First of all, remember what it means that we are his house. We are the people chosen by God to be a part of God's household, part of his own family. You looked at some verses in your lesson this week that verify and support the concept of Christians being built together as a family or a household of God. Like Hebrews, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 also uses a building analogy to describe how Christians are gathered together to serve the Lord in one house. Peter writes, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And later in the same passage, in verse 10, Peter says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Remember when we studied the Gospel of John in chapter 15, 14, Jesus said that those who kept his commandments were his friends. And then in the other Gospels, we see the progression as Jesus moved away from his physical family to embracing his spiritual family. Remember when he was told that his mother and brothers were outside looking for him. He said that those who did the will of his father in heaven are his brothers and sisters. And then after the resurrection in John 20, 17, we have the first recorded time that Jesus personally called the disciples his brethren. So we've already considered this a lot, I know, but it's just so important. We are his holy brothers. Do you realize the extreme blessing it even was for Moses to be a servant in God's house? He was in a position to be used by God and to bring him much glory. And yet now here we are as members of the family of God, fellow heirs together with the son. Don't let this day come to an end without spending time considering this astounding reality that we are God's children and that Christ calls us his brothers. But let's keep going in verse six. 
it says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if. If? Wait a minute. Does that mean that it depends on us in some way to be considered as a part of the household of God? Is there something I can do that would remove me from that status? You looked at this if statement in your lesson this week. If we hold fast, we are his house. So be careful that you don't misunderstand the meaning here. This verse is not teaching that someone who believes in Christ can lose their salvation. Or that salvation is something that we have to earn or hold on to by our own efforts, our own good behavior. The author is not saying that we can lose our salvation. He is saying that if you are a person who perseveres or holds fast in your faith, then you are truly a member of God's household. Your holding fast proves your position as a child of God. Holding fast is not how we earn or keep our salvation, but holding fast will evidence a life that has been truly redeemed by Christ. Here's a simple example to illustrate. And I know all examples break down somewhere, but this is the best I could come up with. My husband and I were watching a football game on TV a couple weeks ago. UCLA, go Bruins, versus San Diego State. And one of the announcers said that San Diego State is located just a few hours south of Los Angeles on I-5. And my husband said, well, obviously that guy's not from Southern California. Some of you are laughing because, you know, if you've lived here for a while or if you were born here like me, that is not how Californians refer to the Interstate 5. We call it the 5, right? The 5. If you're from California... You refer to all freeways this way, the 5, the 101, the 170. People don't become Californian when they say the 5, but their way of saying it distinguishes them as truly from Southern California. You are from SoCal if you say the 5, right? That's the sense that the author is using this if statement. We don't become God's family by holding fast to our hope. We hold fast to our hope, and that is evidence that we are a part of God's family. It makes sense here to look down in chapter 3 a little bit to verse 14. So turn over there, verse 14 of chapter 3. We'll get there next week, but you see it says something quite similar. Verse 14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ. We have become, that is true, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We see the same kind of if statement here. Those who hold fast their assurance firm until the end are those who partake of or share in Christ. Their holding fast to their assurance marks them out as those who have become sharers in Christ. They don't have to hold fast in order to become sharers in Christ. Since they have become, they will hold fast. Their holding fast to their assurance marks them out as those who have become sharers in Christ. If we have partaken in Christ, we will be those who hold fast to our assurance. And speaking of assurance, perhaps there are some of you in this room who have struggled in the past or are currently struggling with the assurance of your salvation. Perhaps you don't feel this kind of confidence or the ability to boast in your hope like the author of Hebrews is giving us license to do in these verses. You might think, when did I first believe? was I thinking when I made a profession of faith in Christ? Did I really understand everything about the gospel? I've learned so much since then. Was what I knew then enough to really save me? Was my first profession of faith genuine, or did I come to faith in Christ later? Was I just doing what my parents wanted me to do? 
Was it really my own decision? Past events and experiences can be hard to pin down sometimes, aren't they? We lose our memory of the details. Sometimes if we made a profession of faith as a child, we don't even remember what we thought. We were too little. Sometimes other circumstances and changes in life might cloud our ability to recall what went on or make us doubt that our repentance was genuine from the start. So if that's you, if you struggle with those kind of questions, a good question to ask yourself instead is, what about today? Do I have faith in Jesus Christ right now? Do I believe what he says and submit to him as Lord of my life? Am I holding fast to my hope in Christ today? If you can answer yes to those questions, then you can be assured and press on in your faith and don't worry about trying to figure out what happened in the past, what you said, what you did, what you didn't do. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. It's not about you. It wasn't your initial prayer of repentance or your forsaking of sin or your good deeds that started the work of God in your heart. Those were evidence that he was starting something good in you. The work to save each person is initiated by the Lord and it will be completed by him as well. And you can hold on tightly to that hope. You can have confidence in it and boast about it because you are saved by believing in Christ alone. How did you come to receive salvation? It was through faith alone in Christ alone. And how do you hold on to your confidence and hold fast your hope? We do that in the same way. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. He started it and he will complete it. So the consideration of Jesus and the gospel brings this hope to our lives as those who confessed Christ Jesus as Lord, as those who partake in a heavenly calling, those who are family members of Jesus. We no longer live for ourselves, struggling to figure out our purpose or our meaning in life. We live in him and for him and through him. And serving him gives definition and purpose to our lives through the work that his son already completed for us. And we have hope that our future in heaven is secure. Hope is not just wishful thinking that these things will come to pass. Hope is confidence and expectation that God's word is true and that the promises he makes to us are true and will come to pass. I am saved today solely based on the work of Christ in my life. And so this confident boasting in my hope of heaven is not prideful. It's a confession that Jesus is Lord and that he did for me, what I could never do for myself. My calling and confession were initiated by God, and he is the one who continues to hold me fast. And so because of him, I have this hope. Hebrews 6 says that this hope in Christ acts as a sure and steady anchor for our souls, keeping us safe and secure in him, even when the storms and trials of life surround us. So considering Christ, his great power and mercy in saving us and keeping us, considering the hope that we have in heaven because of his free gift of grace in our lives, these are considerations that will keep us from becoming hard-hearted and from doubting God's goodness to us. If you heard Pastor John's sermon last Sunday morning from Revelation chapter 1, he talked about how the garments that Christ is described as wearing in that throne room scene, throne room scene of heaven were high priestly garments. We see Christ there in the exalted role as high priest over the church. 
Pastor John showed us how he inhabits his church. He intercedes for the church. He purifies the church. He speaks to the church. He controls and protects and shines his glory in the church. I saw so many parallels in that with what we're studying in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is supreme. He is reigning in heaven and he is worthy of our belief and our obedience. Sometimes, if you're like me, you feel a little bit bit out of your depth in studying these things. We can define these words and understand these meanings to the best of our ability, but still, when we really think about it, there's so much that is beyond us, so much we don't understand. And that's okay, because we can turn our wonder into worship, as the Apostle Paul did in Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.